It was said that when the 4th century church father, St. Augustine, once was asked what the first step to heaven was, his reply came quickly, but confidently. In a single word, he said, humility. He was then asked what the second step to heaven was, and again he replied, just a word, humility. And then when asked what the third step to heaven was, St. Augustine steeled himself and replied once more simply, humility. Here in the third chapter of John's gospel, the fourth gospel in our New Testaments, we have recorded for us what the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce called the last words of a humble man. When the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter lay dying at his home, it is reported that a godly friend called on him to visit, intending to comfort this faithful minister for the many good words that he had received both from Baxter's preaching and from Baxter's writing. This visitor apparently heaped profuse praise on Richard Baxter. And with diminishing strength, this Puritan minister replied, I was but a pen in God's hand, and what praise is due to a pen. That same wonderful spirit of holy humility is seen and heard in what is now open before us, the final scene of truly a remarkable man, John the Baptist's life. He must increase, but I must decrease. Seven words only in our English language, but seven words that sum up the very heart and essence of Christian humility. John effectively says here in this passage, Jesus' ministry, that is the Savior's own stardom, is on the rise, and I, well, I am okay with that. Because God has called me to be his prophet and to be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness to prepare a way for him. In other words, John says to us even today, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Just think for a moment about the fact that everyone here this morning, I would imagine, and quite probably everybody you may meet on the streets here in Blandon and in Berks County, has heard of John the Baptist, haven't you? Even people who don't really know much about the contents of the Bible know at least a little bit about this man, John. I call him a wet and wild man in the wilderness, for truly he was. You know, the baptizer, as John was called, made quite a splash when he came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 5 says this, where Mark writes, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Notice that word, all. John made quite a splash. This eccentric evangelist born to Elizabeth and John in their old age this messenger of the Messiah of whom Jesus himself says, among those born of women, there has never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That was Jesus' commendation of this man. This bold baptizer who eventually lost his own head 
for calling out King Herod's sordid affair with his own brother's wife is the very embodiment of this Christian virtue called humility. This is the one whom I will look, Isaiah writes, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and one who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Consider that as great as John the Baptist's popularity was, and it was really great, it is his smallness. It is his littleness. His humble character that has become permanently etched on the pages of history. We don't remember John because he was great, but because he pointed to one greater than himself. Consider first this morning the voice of the Baptist. How did we arrive at this incredible statement and profound example of humility in John 3, verse 30? A verse I remember being shared with as a child. He must increase, but I must decrease. Again, how exactly does John the Baptist show us today what a true servant and disciple of Jesus Christ looks like how he or she must live to exalt another. Despite what comes your way, you point on the praise, you pass on the praise to someone greater than yourself by committing to dying to yourself. That's what John shows us. He shows us that the real secret forward in Christian faith is actually downward into Christian discipleship. He must increase and we must decrease. Well, friends, for starters, we need to remind ourselves of what I call the rarity of John's ministry, the rarity of his ministry. Now, some of you who uh, watch television from time to time may be familiar with the hit NBC singing competition, The Voice. Anybody ever uh, seen The Voice? A couple hands, a couple hands. Very good. Yeah, no, we don't like to admit these things. It's Okay. <laughs> Debuting in April 2011 already at this point, and I believe still going strong today, The Voice features the vocal talents of aspiring amateur singers looking to make it big. I think it starts out typically with a, a blind singing competition. The judges are seated in chairs uh, spun away from those up on the stage. Very interesting concept. Well, in a sense, John himself had an exceptionally rare talent in his own day, that is, he had a voice that was literally from heaven. John's rare talent was that he was sent from God to tell others about God's own son. Notice that the apostle and writer John introduces us to this man and his mission back in John chapter 1, verse 6 through verse 8. John 1, 6 through 8. This, these are words about John the Baptist as I read them. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 400 years. That's how long God's, it had been since God had last sent a prophet, a spokesman to his people. That was really with Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And now all of a sudden, the 700-year-old prophecy found in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, had finally come to fruition. Isaiah 40, verse 3 states, A voice cries 
in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is about John the Baptist proclaiming the glory of God in the face of Jesus, friend. Talk about a beautiful voice. John had a beautiful voice. And notice that the author and apostle's prologue is immediately followed by John the Baptist's own public testimony. Again, there in John chapter 1. Who are you? Who are you? In a manner of speaking, the vocal judges of that time, the Jewish priests and the Levites who boasted of their own ability to know what sort of voice pleased God and those voices that didn't please God, these folks heard John in the, in the wilderness and spinning around in their chairs, they asked him, who are you? Who are you? Now let's stop there for just a moment and come back over to John chapter 3. But we'll be back in chapter 1 in just a few minutes. John chapter 3, verse 22, to gain a bit of context for this great statement. Here we read, after this. Now just stop there, after this. It begs the question, after what? After what? Well, John says, after Jesus' now famous nighttime encounter with one of Israel's great teachers, a man by the name of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, After this, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came baptizing. Simply put, I believe John inserts John the Baptist's exaltation of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, and in my view, verses 31 to 36 are not words coming from the lips of John the Baptist, but rather they are coming as commentary from John the Apostle, John the Gospel writer, those words again, John 3, 31 to 36. Here, uh, here we, we have this, this perfect contrast. The heart that is completely darkened with sin and therefore pridefully misunderstanding of both the person and the work of Christ, that is Nicodemus on the one hand. Nicodemus's life will turn out really, really good. You have to read through the end of John to find that out. But on the other hand, we find the heart that is flooded with humility and flooded with gospel light that consequently knows that faith in Jesus Christ calls one to play second fiddle gladly. That is the life of John the Baptist. That's why this scene, this statement, is inserted here. After this, John 3.22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for, another parenthetical statement, John had not yet been put into prison. Listen, basically, at this time, the baptizing business was booming for John the Baptist. Business was good. He was out in the Jordan doing his thing. And then we read, Jesus and his disciples... Some of his disciples, by the way, you might remember, 
had been John's disciples at one time. They had left John the Baptist to follow Jesus as their rabbi. Now Jesus and these disciples have opened up their own baptizing business right next to John. Think about that for a moment. Think about how you or I might respond in a similar situation. Have you ever felt upstaged by a colleague or a friend, or maybe not a friend, who gets the promotion, who shows up and makes a splash? How would you feel if the competition crept into your perceived territory? The answer to that really reveals a little bit about where we stand in terms of humility. Well, hold that thought. Let's keep on reading. John 3, verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and an unknown Jew over purification. It's funny, but not a little bit revealing just how quickly the discussion switches from the topic of purification to the topic of popularity, isn't it? Verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and here's that word again, all are going to him. Mark 1, 5, all were coming to John. John 3, 26, all are going to Jesus. I hear John's disciples saying essentially, hey boss, we know that you said that Jesus was cool and all, and that he was the Lamb of God or something like that. But I thought baptizing was our thing. He's going to put us out of business if you don't do something about it. Can't you sort of hear that dialogue? I think that may have been how it went. John's disciples were worried, but they were worried about the wrong thing. As is often the case, John's followers had failed to really listen to what he said, not only about the identity of Jesus Christ as God's Son, the Lamb of God, but even about his own identity and who he really was. You see, John was not in competition with Christ. He was sent to make a way for Christ. John was there to make much of Jesus. It's what he means when he says, He must increase. I must decrease. It's not about my platform. It's not about my prestige. It's not about my popularity. It's about Jesus. And as such, John is a tremendous model for you and I. Again, notice with me the beautiful tones and notes of John's voice of humility in verse 27. The text says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Friends, pride is the father of a thousand rebellious children. John saw Jesus' rising star as an answer to prayer and as a result of God's own sovereign will, not as an invasion of his personal property. That is true humility. As the scripture declares elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, what do you have, Paul writes, that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Listen, self-importance and pride essentially rejects the sovereignty of God. I demand my own. I demand to be made much of. 
However, real humility demands a heart of submitted uh, uh, willingness to the plans and purposes of Almighty God. Humility requires a healthy sense of self-forgetfulness. Forgetting yourself, forgetting your platform, forgetting your prestige. It's interesting that John Newton, many of us know his name. He's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton, the pastor and author, once said, Young Christians think themselves little. Growing Christians think themselves nothing. But full-grown Christians think themselves less than nothing. It's interesting that as we grow in Christ, we do get smaller. We shrink as we're sanctified. This kind of self-forgetfulness is what we see in Paul himself, the mighty apostle. In Philippians chapter 3, after rattling off his religious resume, his pastoral pedigree, if you will, Paul proclaims in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and following, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If anybody among us in Christian ministry could have said, you know what, yep, bring on the accolades, bring on the adoration, bring on the attention, it's Paul. But he said, I count it all as rubbish next to knowing Jesus. What a model. To me, Paul really is simply restating what John initially said. He, Jesus, must increase. But I, Paul, John, Dan, fill in your own name, we must decrease. The voice of the Baptist He says, God has given me my ministry and he's given Christ his. If my crowds are diminishing and Jesus' crowds are growing, then praise be to God. For his sovereign purposes and for his goodness. That is precisely why I stepped forward to preach and to baptize in the first place. To prepare the way for Messiah. He must increase. I must decrease. But there's another voice, if you note or read carefully in this passage. It's not the voice of the baptizer, it's the voice of the bridegroom. The voice of the bridegroom. John's notable last words here in John chapter 3 not only point us towards a healthy recognition of God's gracious sovereignty as a helpful hint for cultivating a heart of real humility, but there's another point to be made here. And that point is what we might file under self-awareness. Self-awareness. You see, on the one hand, humility begins by seeing God rightly in his sovereignty for who he is. But it also demands that we see ourselves, our place in God's perfect plans and designs, rightly or clearly as well. We need to seize God's sovereignty and we need to see our own self-importance, or lack thereof, rightly. Andrew Murray, uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, well-known South African pastor and writer, once said, until pride be killed in you, 
Nothing of heaven can live in you. This week has been a remarkable week of study because pride, for me, has been a besetting sin. It has been painful day after day this week to dig around in this text and prepare this message, not because I don't love it, but because I've needed it so for so many years. And I continue to mortify pride even today. See, what we see in John the Baptist, particularly in verses 28 to 30, is to borrow a phrase from Gavin Ortland's recent book, simply the joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy of self-forgetfulness. A few moments ago, I told you we'd be going back to chapter 1, and here we find ourselves going there now, because the link is found in verse 28 of John chapter 3. John 3, 28 says, You yourselves bear witness Bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And again, the careful reader might say, well, when did John say that? And that takes us back to John chapter 1. You see, John's Judean ministry raised a lot of eyebrows. However, John had been consistent from the very first dunk, from the very first baptism. Once again, we read back in John 1 verse 20 that when the judges on the voice, Jerusalem, heard John, they they turned around and they asked him, who are you? Where does this voice come from? And then we read these words in John 1 20 and following. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What a moment that could have been for him. What a moment John could have stepped in and said, yes, I've arrived. I am he. I'm the Christ. He didn't do that. I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay, so maybe you're not the best, but maybe you're second best. I mean, Elijah's great in the Jewish mentality. Are you the prophet at least? And he answered, no. John was content in God's assignment for him. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, John, the gospel writer, comments, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, referring to Jesus, stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I think John is saying this, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking who I am when you should be focused on who he is. Who is he? Again, humility comes when we rightly understand who God is and in relief who we ourselves are. And I submit to you, dear friends, that we can't even begin to fathom who we are as creatures and finite beings until we've grappled with the infinite and with who God is. Various people have have been credited with that familiar saying, humility is not thinking less of yourself, rather it is thinking 
of yourself less. And that's helpful. But the fact of the matter is, humility, and we need to listen to this. Some of us struggle with humility in a way that you might not realize. Humility is not hiding who you are. Your abilities, your talents, your gifts. It's not hiding who you are. False humility is just another harmful and sinful mask of pride. Neither is true humility hating who you are. Some of us hide. Some of us hate. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Humility is not hiding, nor is it hating. There have been plenty of people who have hated themselves different aspects of who they are. And that is not what it means to be humble. Rather, humility is being honest with who you are. It's being honest about what God has done in you and how God has made you and what God desires of you. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, was once asked to speak at a large church in Melbourne, Australia. As he was introduced to the audience, the moderator of that meeting spoke in eloquent and grand terms in his introduction with well-chosen phrases of all that Taylor had done for the cause of Christ. He was introduced to the crowd at the very end of this introductory speech as our illustrious guest. Hudson Taylor then stepped to the pulpit and was silent for a matter of minutes. And then he addressed the crowd, saying, Dear friends, I am merely the little servant of an illustrious master. In much the same way, John the Baptist's mission and ministry had been both clear and consistent from the start. He said to those who asked him, Who are you? He said, Look, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. John next gives us an illustration, even what he gives us is a moving analogy that is incredibly insightful for what humility is all about. And we find this in verse 29 and verse 30. John says here, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete, for he must increase, and I must decrease. Now, perhaps some of us in the room have had the great honor of being asked to be the best man at a friend's wedding. It is a great honor. Nowadays, the duties of a best man are few in number, and probably for good reason. They are, firstly, to throw a party but not too wild of a party. They are secondly to be sure that the groom shows up on time, both to the rehearsal and to the wedding day. They are thirdly to not forget the the rings, the wedding rings, especially when the the pastor asks for them. And then fourth, simply to not embarrass oneself too badly with the wedding toast. Basically to keep the groom alive and in the same state as the wedding is being held. But in Jesus' day, the friend of the bridegroom had a far more important set of responsibilities. 
And credit belongs to William Barclay, the commentator who helpfully pulls back the veil for us to be able to see these insights into the role of the friend of the bridegroom. He says, quote, the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place in a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He even presided over the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one additional special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber before the wedding night and let no false lover in. He would open the door only when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he let him into the bridal chamber and went away rejoicing. For his task was completed and the lovers were together. He did not grudge the bridegroom his bride. He knew that his only task had been to bring the bride and the bridegroom together. And when the task was done, he willingly and gladly faded out of sight. Close quote. Now, for those of you contemplating getting married soon, I bet that's going to shape how you select who your best man is going to be. John humbly understood that the coming wedding was not his party. It was Jesus's. John was the friend, even the best man in a sense, but the girl belonged to Jesus. And that girl is you and me. That's the church. Jesus gets the girl. John's job was to set them up. John's job was to make the arrangements, to guard the purity of the wedding chamber, and to ensure that the voice of the bridegroom, when it was called, the bride was ready to receive her beloved. Then and only then was John's job truly complete, and he went away happy. Another John, this one by the name of Piper, once said, when Jesus becomes greater in the world and I become lesser in the world, my joy actually increases. You want to know why many of us are so miserable? It's because we are fighting Jesus for joy. We are insisting on our own name to be made much of when true joy is found in making much of his, making much of Jesus. John 3, 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, John says, is now complete. Charles Spurgeon adds, the more self sinks, the more Christ rises. Like the two scales of a balance, the one must go down in order for the other to come up. Self must sink in repentance so that Christ in us may rise by faith. Gotta love Spurgeon. The true disciple, friend, and servant of Christ, like John, realizes that he must decrease so that Jesus may increase. The friend of God rejoices when the Son of God gets the acclaim, when the Son of God gets the attention. His response is joy over the voice of the bridegroom, not bitterness or petty jealousy. The voice 
of the Baptist and the voice of the bridegroom. But there's one more voice to consider finally this morning, and that's the voice of the bride. The voice of the bride. It's your voice, and it's mine. At the end of our passage, John 3, verse 31 to 36, which again I believe is John the Apostle's, not John the Baptist's statement, but John the Apostle and his commentary, we find these words. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, be- not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I think John the writer, who lived many more years, is imploring us to lend voice to Jesus, to acclaim Him, to join John the Baptist in saying that he must increase and we must decrease. And so I leave you with this question today simply. How are you going to respond to this announcement of who Jesus is today? It's one thing for us to understand John and see his incredible example of humility. It's one thing to to see that and and really just to appreciate it. It's such a remarkable example of humility, but that's not sufficient. To admire John does not position you well for eternity. There are many admirers of John the Baptist. Frankly, there are many admirers of Jesus Christ who are going to split hell wide open one day. It's quite another thing to acknowledge this truth for ourselves and say with eyes of faith and a voice of repentance, Jesus must increase in my life, and I must decrease in my life. Will you say that this morning? I think about what Paul says, interestingly enough, connected to purification in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul, the writer, says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This entire scene of John the Baptist making much of Jesus began with a question about what? Purification. It began with a debate about purification. Jesus is the bridegroom who came from heaven to give himself and to sanctify for himself a bride. To purify her. To cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. As great as a friend of the bridegroom as John was. 
and as profound a display of humility that he shows us today until or unless you respond in faith to the voice of the bridegroom, you remain outside of the joy of that blessed union. You must confess Christ is Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Friend, the Bible tells us something we all need to hear. That God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Such an important statement, it's listed in several different places that we might not miss it. The Bible also says that true humility starts by hearing the voice of the bridegroom and opening our heart to him. John 1 verse 11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Will you say yes to Jesus' proposition for a marriage for all of eternity? He has made a heavenly proposition. My life for yours. I'll do what you can't. You respond and enjoy this salvation that I give you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, James 4.10 says, and he will exalt you. For one day, the true judge will turn in his chair. And the only thing that will matter on that day is what your voice sounds like. Is your voice full of despising God on that day or delighting in his son? Will you have acknowledged your sinfulness before the Lord? Or will you have said, Jesus is my everything. He's the lover of my soul. And God say, come on in my child. What is your decision today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many voices that we hear today in our culture. So many voices calling us to follow this or to do that. But Lord, help to pierce all that noise and drown it out so that we can hear the one voice that truly matters. Help us, O oh Lord, like John the Baptist, to know our place. And our place is not worthless. You loved us so much that you sent your own son to rescue us and to give us hope eternal. Father, I pray, O oh Lord, today, if there is even one,
that you would call him or her to yourself. They would repent of their sin by the working of the Holy Spirit to embrace Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, be pleased to help us follow in such an example as we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.